I've heard of this uh, distinguished conference for many years. Never thought that uh, you'd give me the honor of asking me to address you, and I'm uh, most touched and hope you'll be helped by what I have to say. Let's turn in scripture to Luke chapter um, 11, and I'll read from 9 to 13. Luke 11 and verse 9. Hear the word of God. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead, or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Uh, Now you uh, are aware of how Luke in the history of redemption deals with the Holy Spirit, um, how he introduces us in the first chapters to uh, an old covenant scene, to priests and worshippers in the temple, and how the Spirit of God comes upon some of them and and they prophesy. It is like uh, John on the Isle of Patmos, where um, he, we are told, was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. That doesn't mean that he was in a state of ecstasy, but that he was in uh, the spirit of prophecy. And so then he uh, declares, sees, and captures these 22 chapters of the book of Revelation. And so it is, uh, the Holy Spirit is present. The Spirit comes on worshippers and priests and their wives and Mary. And then there is virtually not a reference to the Holy Spirit in the next chapters. Um, There's a reference to our Lord quoting in the synagogue of Nazareth, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And then right at the very end, there is a reference to his coming. He's been promised now and he's going to come. You stay in Jerusalem, He's, he's coming. And there's a stepping stone between Uh, the temple and Jerusalem in the text that is before us in in this reference to the Holy Spirit. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to them that ask him? The first point I want to make to you tonight is that uh, this promise is made to God's own children. In this promise, in this passage, we have a a pearl of a promise, a series of very great promises, building up in earnestness and in affection. Ask, and it shall be given. You seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And he who seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, the door will be opened. Now, you are aware that these promises do not belong indiscriminately to all. You can't put these words of Jesus on a notice board outside your church. Ask and it will be given you. 
for a man walking by in the street uh, will look at that promise and he will say, sounds good to me. Then I'll ask that I'll have that woman. I'll ask for money uh, to get me to a week in Las Vegas. I'll ask that I'll win the lottery on Saturday. I'm encouraged to believe it because God says ask and it will be given to you. Now, we're all aware how foolish such a response is. Uh, that this is not a promiscuous promise. You see, it's very carefully curtailed in our text. How much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that these words are spoken to the children of God, to Jesus' disciples. They are part of a discourse on prayer. And his followers then uh, just so uh, moved and elevated by his praying and they know that John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray and so they ask the Lord if he'll teach them how to pray. And these are the response of Jesus of what our Heavenly Father will do in what is the, the great enterprise and the most troubled and difficult exercise that any Christian can be involved in and that is in prayer and if today you are a child of God then this is your promise if you're a disciple of the Lord Christ if you receive God's son as Messiah and Savior then you've been given the right to be called a son of God he's your father in heaven and so this promise is is yours all of you the weakest lamb in the flock of Christ the newest Christian the most backsliding believer it's not the promise of anyone else. It's the elect's promise. It's the promise to the twice born. But if you're spurning the Lord Jesus and obeying another Lord and you're rejecting the privilege of being adopted into the family of God, then this is not your promise. It's a promise that is for the sons of the heavenly father, for the twice born. And so there are multitudes of men and women and they can read these words but they may find no comfort in them at all. It's not at all true that if they ask God for something then God is bound to give it to them. So all of us must ask ourselves then have we any claims on this promise? Are we mere believers? Are we sinners who have acknowledged our sin and have turned from it, especially the sin of unbelief, and we've uh, locked into the, the blessed Redeemer that God has provided? Are we the disciples of Christ, and are we wanting to be taught, especially how we communicate, communion with God? I say there's a very possibility very great possibility that men pray to God and he won't answer because they're asking amiss. They're asking for things that they might consume them on their own lusts. They're asking while they have a tender regard and uh, a defense of the sinning that's going on in their hearts and lives. And they're asking perhaps for mercy from God when they are showing no mercy themselves to people that are in debt to them. We're told that in such cases God won't hear us and so we've no right to take these great words which everybody can quote 
The man in the street still can quote them and believe that they're an assurance that our whims and our fancies will be met. No, no, this is a great family promise that the Heavenly Father makes to those who by grace have become his children. And when they ask, yes, when they ask for things that are pleasing to their father, then there's a great assurance and certainty here that God will certainly give these things to them. That's the first brief point. And secondly, this promise is not urging unbelievers to seek for the Lord or his spirit. Now I want uh, to urge everybody, everybody in Mississippi, everybody in the world to uh, seek a place of true worship. You remember in Athens, uh, Paul is there speaking, Acts 17, and he's addressing the philosophers in Acts And he says to them, men should seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from us. So in Athens then, it's a terribly superstitious and religious place and on every crossroads there's an altar and there are temples on virtually every street and there are um, priests and priestesses selling their religions um, everywhere. And Paul is saying to the Athenians, now you search for the true and living God. You search. You don't, don't say, well, all these are saying the same thing. They're all different roads up the same mountain. They're all believing uh, in the same God. Don't, don't go down that way. Search, he says. Go and, and listen. Can you hear How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. It soothes his sorrows, heals his wounds, and drives away his fears. Can you hear it? All hail the power of Jesus' name, let angels prostrate. Can you hear them singing that? Do you see a purity and a calmness and a joy and a peace? And is there respect? And are husbands loving their wives and wives obeying their husbands and children orderly and happy and old people and slaves? And do you see the way that there's a a reality? There's a reality about the living God and his son, Jesus Christ. Go, Go looking. Don't go to any place. He tells them, search And perhaps reach out and find him, he says. And so we want people, we want people to come to the services. We want them to hear the word of God preach. We want them to sit under the best possible ministry for their lives, for their souls, for their families. That that's not a luxury, but that's absolutely essential for a happy uh, Christian life. And when they come to listen intently and seek to understand and and to learn and and discover what God wants for them and then find grace to do what God wants. Seek. Search for the Lord. Search for his people. Search for a place of worship that's theocentric and Christocentric. And then... um, Seek to obey what God says. 
I want people to do that. I want to do that for myself. If I'm asking God for a closer walk with him or seeking greater trust in him and knocking for entry into the deepest fellowship with him, then keep on. Oh, never give up. Never give up. I do believe that in such longings and yearnings, there is saving faith. There is the possession of God's salvation in that actual asking and seeking and knocking. Some of you are troubled with uh, a lack of assurance. And we all have people in our congregations who are um, casualties of something and they're not sure. And when you preach your sermons on assurance, they end up doubting more than they did before you preached. (laughs) And... uh, you say to the husband, is, is she any better? No, no better at all, he says. No. So I, I speak to people, and this is what I found most helpful. I challenge them, and I say, can you say this? I'm not sure if I have him. But I know that if I did have him, I'd be safe. Can you say that? I'm not sure if I have him, but oh, I know if I had him, I'd be safe. Only a Christian can say that. And I seek then to be an instrument in the Holy Spirit in in giving to them assurance. But I don't believe that this passage then is saying to men and women who are uh, in their unbelief, uh, seek Christ. Indeed, I think that the language of the New Testament is quite the opposite, that it doesn't show us people seeking Christ. In fact, it says categorically that none is seeking God. What we find in the Bible is the Lord of grace, the good shepherd, and he is seeking men and women. I find it saying, God is seeking you. He's seeking you in the testimony of your friends. He's seeking you in the preaching of the gospel. He's seeking you in the offer of pardon and forgiveness through Christ. He's seeking you in the prayers of your parents and your friends. He's seeking you in the Bible that you read and the Christian books and tracts that you are given and in a host of providences that increasingly is making this world and all its charm and voluptuous enticements so strangely unattractive to you and more and more you seek the presence of, of Christians and like Bunyan with the women of Bedford just like to sit and listen and eat your sandwiches as they talk together, deliberately knowing that he's hearing about blessings they've had and how good God has been to them. And in all of this, God is showing evidences to you that uh, he is seeking you. You're a woman and you, you went to the open plan office where you work uh, at your desk on a Monday morning as usual and there was another girl there and you always liked her and you said, did you have a nice weekend? 
And she said, yes, yes, oh, we had such a blessing in, uh, in church on Sunday, you know. There was, I heard something that was so helpful to me. And you thought, oh, she goes to church. Uh, she's a Christian. And then you'd say to her quite often, hey, will you have a good time in church yesterday? And then she'd tell you a little bit more. You didn't know she was praying for you and that her friends were praying for you. And then one day she said, we've got a special meeting. Uh, a man from Wales is coming to speak to us. And, uh, <laughs> would you like to come? And you were hoping she'd ask you. And you went along with her. And you sat there, and when you sat there, you knew you were coming home. God was seeking you. He was seeking you through that other girl who'd been praying for you so long. I'm afraid that a great deal of what men refer to as they are seeking, the glassy stares of teenagers who look at you so bored, and when you ask them, uh, how is it uh, spiritually with you? They'll say, oh, I'm seeking. And what men and women and boys and girls talk about as they're seeking is the seeking of a better invitation than they've had so far. They're wanting to hear the gospel with more excitement. They're wanting the tingle factor, the goose flesh. They're wanting to feel it more deeply. They're wanting to hear it more persuasively so that they will not have to take that lonely, personal, painful, intellectual, and conscious-driven decision that henceforth they are going to entrust the rest of their lives and eternity to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, men and women, the Lord Jesus Christ today is not an object that you have to search for, as if he were somewhere lost, buried away in some mysterious place in a cave in the Himalayas that requires a trip to Nepal, or on a distant island in the South Seas, or some lonely cell behind granite walls in Scotland, or some inaccessible and forbidding spot. It's not true for a single moment that the Savior or the Holy Spirit is so far from you that you've got to seek him. Because in the preaching of the gospel, the word is nigh you. It's in your heart. It's in your mouth. It's the word of faith that I preach and that you preach week by week to the people. And your task and your obligation and your privilege is, is not to be out seeking him and shaking your head so sadly and that you're saying it's so hard to find my savior. He's the one seeking. 
And he's so near to you that even these words listened to on a CD months after I've been preaching here at Twin Lakes. But he's still seeking you. And you're hearing it now in a car. You're hearing it. You can't get away from him. He is seeking you. And you don't need to go from where you now are saying, well, you will seek for him somewhere else. Because he's close to you now. You don't need to go to your bedroom. You don't need to go to the garden or some mountainside. There's no need for you to leave this place tonight without him. He's not to be sought for. He's the one who's seeking you. And he said, come along. Come along to Twin Lakes now. Come along. I, I know you're, you're uncertain, but, but you come. You come. You come with your husband. You come. His words to those who are not sure whether they're believers are or not, are not seek. He's not saying, go and look in and in. And in and in and in, and in and in and in and in. He's not saying that at all. Not to the depths of your emotions and the depths of your experience. He says, I'm here. I'm here. You come now to me. Coming to Jesus Christ is an action performed by the Holy Spirit, taking the words that you're hearing and applying them to your mind and understanding and your conscience and conviction and to your will to enable you to say here I am Lord foolishly staying away from you thank you for not giving up on me thank you for seeking for me thank you for finding little me he's not seeking you are seeking He's not seeking more intense seeking or deeply emotional seeking or weepy seeking or sighing seeking. He's watching to see, have you received him? Have you opened your life to him and welcomed him as your prophet and your priest and and your king? He is saying, you come to him. You enter the kingdom of God by One door, just one door. And he's the door that is set before you. He doesn't say, go on seeking for the door, that the door is in front of you now, right before you. Scratch on it. Tap it. He will hear. The third thing I want to say to you is that God's children should ask and seek a knock for God to fulfill his promises. What, what should we as Christians plead? What should we as Christians ask? What should we knock on the gates of heaven? And I'm saying this, are there commandments? Do you know God's will? Has he made it clear? Is he the creator who is not silent? Has he spoken, Exodus 20, in in the commandments? Uh, 
no other God but him. Don't make any idols. Don't take his name in vain. Remember, one day a week, uh, his day, honor mum and dad. No violence, no sexual sin. Don't steal, don't lie. Don't covet. Has God told us that? Is that opened up by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, in, in Matthew 5 particularly, where he shows the inwardness of our sin and our need to uh, hate it and, and kill it and pluck out the right eye? And has he told us to love God with all our hearts? Do we have such commands that we are to love our neighbors as we love ourselves? Is that a command from God? Has he told us that we are to love our enemies? That we are to forgive. We are to forgive and forgive. 70 times 7. We are to offer forgiveness. That uh, we are to overcome a parent's evil and a husband's evil with good. We are to turn the other cheek. Does he say that? And aren't there in all those commandments, aren't there in all of them promises that are built into them? That in everything God asks us to do, there's a promise of enabling grace to do. So we can say with Augustine then, command whatever you will and whatever you command fulfill in me. And so I'm saying, though these seem just hopelessly idealistic, they're not because of the Holy Spirit. And so there is no mountain too high for you to climb and no burden too heavy for you to bear, no river too wide or too swift that you can't cross it, no fires too hot that you can't endure, There's no temptation so powerful that you can't resist. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So I'm saying, are there commandments? Then we turn them into enabling grace cries. And we should ask God also to fulfill his promises. When we start to pray, we should say, do I have a promise? Do I have a promise now? I don't mean one that is just emotionally jumping off the page and zapping me, making me weep, taking all the strength from me and touching me very deeply. There are, oh, oh, thank God there are such times under the word and with the word when we want to, oh, we want to hold it. Ooh, how wonderful it is. What a word it is. God has spoken. God has given us his word. And sometimes it just makes us weep and makes us sing. That's not my concern now, though. There is uh, this great word. And... uh, It comes from a better place. 
And if you ask to what degree of inspiration this word has, then we're told by our Lord, to its jots and to its tittles. And I am asking in this word then, is there a promise? And is that promise mine simply because of his grace, because he's made me a child of God? And you say, uh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's, there's one promise. Is there more? Yeah. <laughs> many more, yes. Exceeding great and many such promises. And they are all yes and amen in Christ Jesus. And these promises are all mine. And when I worship God, I can pray with confidence that God will fulfill everything that he has promised to me and, and to every Christian. And such promises are the limits of God's obligations. What he's promised, he will give, but no more than that. For example, he hasn't promised that I'll get A grades in my exams, or even that I'll pass every one of my exams. Many a godly man has failed his exams. <laughs> he was not promised that uh, he will cure me of every ailment and every disease I contract. He's not promised me riches or marriage or children or a long life. He's not promised that I shall see a mighty religious awakening in my lifetime. And where there are no promises then, God has not bound himself to us. Ah, but every promise that he's made, every one of them, he will fulfill. He will work all things together for my good. He will supply all my needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will ensure that nothing whatsoever, no demon from the pit, no earthly power shall ever separate me from the love of God, which is in Jesus Christ my Lord. He promises me that I will be enabled to do all things he wants from me through Christ who strengthens me. He has promised me that I will learn in whatsoever state I am in therewith to be content. He has promised me that the good work he has begun in my heart, he will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. And what he has promised then, and many such promises, he will fulfill effectually. And that then is to be the stuff. The stuff of believing meditation, the stuff of doxology and praise and intercession. All our certainty and all our assurance is grounded in such promises. Our Heavenly Father is saying to every one of his children, you may ask me for the fulfillment of any promise. You may plead for its fulfillment now. You knock on the door of these promises. The door will be opened for you. And what I am saying to you is that for every expectation and for all your 
confidence, you must have a promise. And you can begin to doubt God, and you can begin to question his faithfulness whenever you discover he's breaking his promises. It's not when he fails your expectations or fails to grant your whims that you're justified in being plaintive and self-pitying and angry with him. It's when, oh, blood-bought promises begin to fail. And then at that point, you may doubt him. And so has God made promises about the Holy Spirit. Well, we've read them tonight, haven't we? In Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. My Holy Spirit upon people who limp and drink iniquity like water. Who do I mean? Your sons and your daughters. Your old men, your young men, your servants, working people, men and women. I will pour out my spirit, he says. And here's a promise, and it's to all God's people. Whatever their age or intellect, he says, I will do it. Christ is coming, and oh, then what, what a lovely new age it will be. Those on whom it's come, the people of God, the covenant people. And so we can ask God, we can say, Lord, it's a barren place without your spirit, my congregation. Oh, how hard it will be without your spirit working there, my sermons. Oh, how dry they'll be without your spirit, my thinking and preparing. Oh, what will that be without your spirit? I read your word in Joel 2 and 28 and 29. I'm holding you to your word that I will pour out I won't keep him. Oh, he's too precious for me to send into that dark world. I want him in the happiness of heaven. I'll send him. I'll send him forth. I'll pour him out. And how we need him. We're blind and we need illumination. And we're impotent. And we need strength. And we're ignorant. And we need understanding. And all that is found in the Holy Spirit. Give it to me. Give him to me. And so that's the background then for our texture and these great words of uh, fathers giving their sons what their sons ask. And uh, our father in heaven giving the Holy Spirit to those who ask him. He makes it so interesting, doesn't he? The little boy is hungry. Daddy, daddy, I'm so hungry. My, my tummy's aching. Give me some fish. I'll uh, give you something. And he throws a viper across the room at him. <laughs> oh, mommy, I want, daddy, I want, I want an egg. Can you boil an egg for me? And you drop onto his plate a scorpion with its tail. Well, who would act? A crazy man, a devil would act like that. We wouldn't treat our children. Your neighbors, you know, you wish that some of the Christian families in your church could behave as sweetly as some of the non-Christian families who live on your street. 
you, we've all had that experience, haven't we? They do things together and they holiday together and they seem so close and ah, they don't give scorpions and snakes. They give, they give bread and they give eggs and they're evil men by nature. And we know, we know how to give good gifts because there's a reflection in what we heard this afternoon of the father with every earthly father. So he's given a promise to us. Whoever asks for the Holy Spirit, whoever asks, whatever child of his, whatever uh, sinner who's repented and trusts in Jesus and now is in kingdom life and has high and holy tasks and longings, Ah, he wants to forgive. Seventy times seven. He doesn't want to overcome evil with violence, but with good. And he says, can't do it without the Holy Spirit. Father, give me the Holy Spirit. What does he say? What, what is the word that... Our Lord uses in this text, does he say, uh, to those who agonize for the Spirit. He doesn't say that. Those who uh, roll on the floor and uh, bang their heels in frustration and their fists on the ground and shout to God for the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say that, does he? That those who make full surrender, that they have the Holy Spirit, or completely dedicated, or renunciate all evil or lay everything on the altar body, soul, spirit, mind, affections all perfectly yielded to God a consecration of their entire beings to him does he say that? does he say those who struggle for him those who ask in intensive and persevering in prayer and whip their backs and wear a hair shirt and when they have fulfilled every condition and are perfectly possessing of 100% faith, then when they ask for the Holy Spirit, they get it. Is, that, is there a hint of that here? Not at all. He says, ask for him. That's grace, my friends. He doesn't have to be arrested out of the Father's reluctant hands. The Spirit is given. And the gift isn't uh, earned or won by effort. I returned from my three years in Philadelphia in 1964 and we got married and married the girl back home and then uh, I had to get a job. She was a teacher and I was candidating here and there. I got a job as a wages clerk for the National Coal Board. And I had a colliery, kinhydra, an anthracite colliery. And on Friday mornings, I had a little hut. And men would come with their pay slips, and I would get the pay packet. They were all paid in cash. Many of them didn't have bank accounts, and I would give them, I would give them their, their pay. In grovel. At the pay booth, they didn't thank me with tears in their eyes. 
for their pay packets. They had worked a mile underground in the dust of a coal seam, lying down and cutting into the coal with their pickaxes. I was giving them nothing. They'd earned their pay. God doesn't make us work for the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is a gracious, God-given gift. And he's given by grace alone and received by faith alone to the thanksgiving of the Savior alone who's bought him for us. And at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, the history of the coming of the church, we're not told, oh, the church gathered together and we're agonizing, meeting all the conditions, fully paying the price of Pentecost and so the Spirit could come. Just one request, he said, but don't leave Jerusalem. That's what he said, don't leave Jerusalem. And they were with one accord, loving one another, caring for one another, all knowing that they, they needed much more. If they were to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, they were, oh, they were weak. They'd never preached for him. Most of them had never suffered for him. And, oh, they needed, they needed a power outside themselves. They needed a divine perforation of their lives, a, a change of direction, an energizing work of God and he comes suddenly suddenly there came the sound of a rushing mighty wind and he came he didn't come to Peter because of works of righteousness which Peter had done he was still hurting with the guilt of his denial God in his grace says now feed my sheep and start at Pentecost and he stands and faces the thousands and <laughs> What grace he's given by the Holy Spirit, the gift of God to him. Not a reward for fasting and praying. But the promise of Joel fulfilled in Peter. And he sees it. He comes to us without money. And without price. And we appropriate him by confessing our great need and marveling at his great mercy and he comes so I'm saying then that third point to ask God to fulfill his promises and give us his spirit when we ask him and fourthly I want to say that God's children should ask for the spirit in order to live the Christian life now, it's a, a wonderful passage here, and it's really the echo of uh, Matthew's uh, Sermon on the Mount. And a very similar verse is found in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel to our text. And here our Lord is dealing with the most difficult thing that any Christian will ever be asked to do, and that is to pray. And if you ever want to humble a minister, you talk to him about his prayer life. 
And our Lord gives this simple parable to make prayer come alive. And then he makes these great promises to assure them that God hears them and uh, sees us when we are seeking and opens to us when we're knocking. And we're kind to our children, but oh, what a kind heavenly father we have. I had a friend and he was going to a church and he loved the minister there and the minister every Sunday said, oh, kind and loving father. He always used that adjective, kind. Oh, kind father. And so one day Derek uh, went to him and Derek said, why do you always use that word kind when you were speaking to God? I love it. Why, why do you? He said, oh, I was in a church, my first church. And there was so little kindness in that church. And the elders weren't kind men. and It was ruined, really, because of the absence of kindness. No absence in our Father in heaven at all. A kind and loving Father. He hears, he opens. We're kind to our children. How, how much more? Is God kind to us? When the road is long and it's hard going, then uh, we, we have to keep going. Put the next foot down. And the next foot down. And the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, is there in the ball of our feet. And we have to keep going and keep going. And we're a living sacrifice that we are to give to God. It's our reasonable service. And we have to take up our cross and deny ourselves and follow and follow and follow whithersoever he goes. The Christian life is one of great ethical stringency. It's tough for ministers, but oh, it's tough for men who work in factories and men who are in business, and the pressures and the moral dilemmas that they face, severe, demanding, arduous labor. The burden we bear is heavy, and in addition, we have to, we have to bear their burdens, don't we, the weak? We have to get out of the house, and we have to go out in the evenings, and we're tired, because their burden seems enormous. And our Lord lays down principles for how we should live. Um, precept upon precept. Church life, family life, life before the watching world, life with our enemies looking for any mistake that we make. And that's the road. That's the narrow road to heaven, the only road. And we start to think to ourselves, well, who then can be saved? How can anyone live like this? And so he says, ask and it shall be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Seek the grace to pray, the grace to obey these principles and attend to these standards. Do you know the energy 
that we get to live the Christian life. It's Holy Ghost energy. It is. We look at the Christian ethic and the whole issue of a blameless life. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And we're overwhelmed by our failures. You know, you're not confessing you've tried to assassinate the president or, or counterfeit $100 bills. You, those are not your sins. Your sins are ah, the old sins. When you were a teenager, you were familiar with them. You thought marriage was going to make you stop those sins and then you were in your 20s and 30s and 60s and 70s. And we're overwhelmed by our failures. How can I go on as a preacher? How can I go on as a husband? I can't be a church member. I can't, Lord. And... uh, as he preaches the Sermon on the Mount, they're, they're looking at one another. These young boys, these fishermen, they're looking. The office worker from the tax office, he's, he's looking. And then he, he wants to encourage them with this great promise. He could read their thoughts. The things you were demanding, they're thinking. The things you were demanding from us are quite impossible. They're unrealistic to ask us to live like that. And he is saying to them, all things are possible with God. All things are possible. So Jesus says, have you thought of asking? Have you thought of seeking? Have you thought of knocking? Have you, have you gone to him and said, I'm finding it so hard to be a Christian? He says... Did Jesus find it easy to pick up the cup? Did did Jesus not ask why God had forsaken him? There are many Christians here tonight who've asked God why. It's not sinful to ask God why. The Christian life is not some hopelessly idealistic and unattainable life. It's not, you know, You know, the people who most helped you. The people you'll never stop thanking God for. The people who at a certain time came into your life and were so patient and loving and secretly prayerful and kind. There was a, a credibility of godliness because they had asked And sought and knocked for the Holy Spirit to come into their lives and help them. And they've helped you. And we're on this narrow path. And it's reaching to glory. And if we leave that path, there's no other path. And when our Lord is giving us these famous, familiar words, uh, he's not telling them to us that we should admire the meditative life, the monastic ideal, the cloisters, but that we should live live this life, live it in the office, in the school, on our street, 
being the only believer in our family. And we ask for the Holy Spirit. We're challenged then tonight about what is our chief commitment. This one thing I do. And, and how do you end that sentence? Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. For to me to live is Christ. What's more important than glorifying God and enjoying him in this world and the next? Well, then you ask for grace. And you ask and you roll it out before him. Be that kind of man, be that sort of minister, be that sort of elder, be that sort of minister's wife. Be a proper Christian boy, uh, girl. Don't be half a Christian. This promise of getting the Holy Spirit, it's, it's got nothing to do with tongues or being the most eloquent preacher. He's not telling us uh, here that you're going to be healed of your, your illnesses. They're not about problems of getting a job or getting some recognition. Uh, this is a promise about where the energy comes from to live the godly life. I had a couple, a young couple in, in my congregation and they were seriously dating, they were engaged. He was just they were academically very able. She was. And in her last semester at university, she dumped him. She said to me, He's boring. And uh, he was ha absolutely heartbroken. He was oh, such a, a bright, lovely Christian, wanted to be a preacher. He said to me uh, weeks later, I'm going to be celibate for the rest of my life. <laughs> I said, oh, come on now, come on. Now you'll find somebody else. No. No, I'll never find anybody else. So the years went by and he became a pastor. And there was no romance in the manse at all. And about uh, 18 years went by, single. And then there was a girl in the congregation and he, oh, he liked her. And he waited till her 18th birthday and he went to her father and mother and asked them if they would give him permission to take her out for a meal. And they talked together and they came back and they said, no, the age gap between you now, it's 20 years. And she's so young to start a, a serious relationship with anyone, I'm, I'm sorry. We, we, we can't allow it. So, three weeks later, a young fellow in the church began to sit next to her. And they looked at the Bible together and they shared a hymn book and they were going out together. And the following week, the boy came to him and he said, Pastor, 
Uh, you might have noticed I'm, I'm, I'm dating Mary in the congregation now, and uh, I want to do this right, and I want you to give me some advice in uh, how I should go out with her. He said to me, I'd make her a far better husband than he ever would. And I was so, I was so sorry for him. And I gave him verses from the Bible. Do you, do you know about that? Uh, all things work together for good. To... <laughs> do, you, do you know it? When it just falls, there's a little heap of verses. <laughs> there and your heart's not in it because he's so upset and, and you can, can't imagine what it must be like to go through all this you give him and he said to me it's alright Jeff it's alright you know when we ask God for something we believe either God gives us what we ask for or he gives us something better. Now that little saying has done me a lot of good and it's done a lot of pastoring in my church when people come with their heartaches and disappointments. That when we ask God for something, he, he gives us what we ask for or there'll be something better. We, we must believe that. My friends, that's what Romans 8, it's not dying here, it's alive. Oh, it's precious, my friends. And three years later, he called me and he was engaged. And could I preach at his wedding? And I married them and they have four children now. So lots of romance in the months now. <laughs> Ask God, ask him. Ask him when your heart is breaking and the door closes and another door closes and God knows what he's doing. Ask for the Holy Spirit to give you patience and wisdom and insight and strength to keep going. The last thing I want to say is that uh, the Father promises the Spirit will be given to those who ask him. And we can sit and have our ministers fraternals which become pity parties and we can say we're living in a day of small things well maybe but we're not living in days of absolutely nothing at all we, are, we can talk about the depress depressing pressures that are being brought to bear on the church and we forget God the Holy Spirit the third member of the Godhead is he central to our thinking? That's what Christ is saying to the disciples here. What you men need now is the Spirit of God. I've told you the ethic. I've told you of the mercy and the love of God. Now, ask God to give you God. And what we need and what we will never stop needing on our deathbeds will be more of the, of the spirit. We need his comfort. We need his courage. We need his morale boosting ministry. 
We need his energizing. We need his competence. We need his fruitfulness, his leading, his perseverance. It's not enough to know that there are problems and there's a shelf of books on that problem and that there are wise friends and special inspirational speakers to help us. The great remedy to all our ills and infirmities is God the Holy Spirit and his tenderness and his love and his desire to glorify Christ in us. The teaching is not at all that there are small things that we can, we can manage. We can get by, by ourselves. But for the great awakenings, we need uh, the Holy Spirit in everything, in everything we do. We need him. We need him. Um, our wives need him. Our children need him. Uh, be with me on the school bus. Help me with this difficult teacher. Our wives, help me prepare this meal and spend the housekeeping money and decide what to do in the yard and heal the kids of their head lice and help me with questions. Why can't they go to this party? And what's wrong with this movie? You need, we need the Holy, every turn, every blind corner. We, we need the Holy Spirit. And uh, we have to ask God for everything. Without the Holy Spirit, it's not there are some things we can do without him. Without him, we can do nothing. We get nowhere in our Christian lives by our wits. And so often our praying is a protest against the very nature of the Christian life. As we will experience heartache and cross-bearing and the blessedness of Men reviling us and cursing us and saying all manner of evil against us falsely. And the heartaches that there is in, in being pastors. And we forget that our usefulness in Christ's service and our profitableness in the work of the church depends on us going through each of those trials as God allocates it to us. I'm saying that often our prayers are a protest against God's providence. And we have to keep going back to God and roll it out before him and tell him. He's your father. You have the same, the same heavenly father as I have. The same heavenly father that Peter had and Paul had. That made them sing in prison when their backs were hurting and their minds were spinning with the injustice of it all they had the heavenly father that you have and he pities his children don't you pity your children when they come home and they've been bullied and they're worried and they don't want to go to school and you don't quite know is it some teacher they've got a problem with or whatever it is and they say homeschool me mummy they say homeschool me uh, I'm, 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 oh, I'm ill. I've got a pain here this morning. I can't go to school today. And we pity them. We were there. And they're so weak and they're so vulnerable. And in the end, they're going to do what we decide. And we pity them in their littleness, don't we? And like as a father pities his children, oh. There's a great cloud of pity from heaven. And he sees us. And what we brought on ourselves, 
and our lack of wisdom have caused ourselves and the grief that we carry and our guilt and the remembrance of past sins and we see her face or his face and we wonder how she is, how he is, how has it worked out for her and we hurt her and he sees us in our shame and he pities us and he sends us grace and he assures us of his love and he provides his spirit to us he knows what we need he knows how we will get by he is able to keep us and he will how marvelous is God's love how wonderful it is and imagine he sends his spirit into a heart that is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked and he sends the Holy Spirit into such a heart. And every imagination of the thoughts of our hearts is only evil continually. He sends the Holy Spirit. It's like as if the sewers of London were blocked and the government sent the Queen. <laughs> and Prince Philip and Prince Charles and Camilla and the whole royal family to put on their dungarees and their Wellington boots and gave them shovels and get down into the sewers. The Holy Spirit. And he comes into our hearts and into our lives and he cleans us up and he washes us again and again and he purifies us. He got on his knees, didn't he? And he washed their feet. He's washed our feet. He's washed our hearts dirtier than our feet. And he will. Thank God for his Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we, we, we are foolish and silly. And uh, our hearts often break because of the remembrance of the hurt we've caused to people we depend on the most, and people who love us the most, and we've kicked them in the teeth. Oh, Lord, have mercy on us and forgive us. Help them tonight, wherever they are. And, Lord, we, we confess our need, if we're going to get by now, and be happy Christians serving thee wisely, believing in a God of grace and not compromising thy holy demands and seeking to serve thee with all our hearts and not to lean in our own understanding but to do thy will and be as holy as saved sinners can be. And then, Lord, it's only by thy spirit. It's only. Our training and our past, it's, it's not going to be any help to us in the future yesterday's blessings are a day late for today and so oh go with us now oh please go with us and uh, make us a blessing to fellow sinners and oh lord please uh, don't hold our sin against us but remind us that you held it against him 
the holy child Jesus whom you loved because you loved us just as much as you loved him it passes our highest understanding we lost in wonder before your pity and your grace oh help us now then help us make us a blessing in our short and uncertain earthly pilgrimage and help us never to bring shame on the name of the one who took such shame for us even the Lord Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior in whose name we pray Amen